Good morning, good morning, good morning. What's up, y'all? How y'all doing? All right, it's good to be here with all of you. Um, can we give the worship team, those that are here, just a real quick hand? Amen, amen, amen. Um, those that are uh, out there online, what's up, y'all? How y'all doing? Uh, my name is Ron. I am on the preaching team. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord God, our peace. Is that all right? Amen. Um, if you have your Bible or your digital device, I'd ask you to turn with me to Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 24. It's Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 24. Just put your finger in there or some sort of marker. We'll get back to that in just a little second, but I um, want you guys to, uh, to be ready. The Personnel Journal reported an incredible statistic. Since the beginning of recorded history, the entire world has been at peace less than 8% of the time. In its study, the periodical discovered that of 3,530 years of recorded history, only 286 years saw peace. Moreover, an excess of 8,000 peace treaties were made and broken. Another study said since uh, 3600 B.C., there have been 14,351 wars, large and small, in which 3.64 billion people have been killed. The value of property destroyed would pay for a golden belt around the world 97.2 miles wide and 33 feet thick. What a depressing way to start talking about peace, huh? But family, I submit to you that our current situation is not unusual. I put before you today that what we're going through, what we're experiencing, is not that unusual. I also would suggest to us that looking toward the world for peace will leave us greatly disappointed. So family, then where do we go? Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. Shalom means more than just peace uh, that we may understand it as. It means completeness, soundness, safety, health, prosperity, quiet tranquility, contentment and friendship of human relationships and with God, especially in a covenant relationship. Peace, shalom, this is the name of God that's ascribed to him by Gideon. Gideon's going to be the main character of our sermonic spotlight today. So let me set the context before we jump into the scriptures here. So where we, when we meet Gideon and the judges, this is after Joshua has led the tribes of Israel into the promised land. As they got into the promised land, they were to be faithful to the covenant with God through obedience of the Torah. Now, although they got into the promised land, there were some remnants of some tribes, some other folks in there hanging out. The Canaanites and some other people lingering around, you know. And God had said to them, listen, you need to drive all that out, like clear it all out so that I can establish y'all in this place. And as a spoiler alert, they, they didn't get rid of all of it. 
The whole point that God wanted them to drive those people out was because he knew that he wanted them to be holy and separate. God didn't want them picking up any of the traditions and customs of the remaining nations. How many people know that God knows us better than we know ourselves? So as far as the religious allegiances are going at this period, it was, it was kind of this mixed bag, right? Like the, the, in, Joshua, in Judges 2, verse 11 through 13, it reads like this. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and Ashtoreth. So it wasn't like a complete forsaking, like I'm completely done with God. Like they, they knew him. It was, it was more subtle than that, y'all. Like, like it, was, it, was, it was the Israelites retained a sense that Yahweh was their national God, that he had delivered them historically from the Egyptians and through all the different things they've been through. But they also believed in some of their fertility gods, Baal and Ashtoreth. When you begin to mix religions like that, it's called syncretism. This is what Joshua had warned the Israelites about in his final words before his death. He told them in Joshua 24, 15, he said, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So where we see the Israelites right now, as they're in this promised land, it's a period of uh, belief in Yahweh, uh, as but at the same time, they have clay household images in goddesses of Ashtoreth. They, they got this confusion going on. They're, they're paying homage to the Lord, but also to Baal. It's kind of like worshiping God and also worshiping a flag. So because they didn't remove all that and worship God alone in all of this, uh, the, the Israelites fell into this cycle, this vicious cycle, downward cycle. It would look like apostasy to oppression to repentance to deliverance to peace and then rinse and repeat. This is, this is, this is the cycle that we see through Judges. And so before the Israelites had kings, they had uh, what they called judges. The tribes had judges. They, they, they weren't judges in the sense of the word that we know, not like a courtroom judge, uh, Judge Judy and them. We're not interested in that. Uh, but these were more like a relig religional, uh, regional political military leaders. They, they would lead each tribe, and they uh, took these judges through a really tragic tale of Israel's failure to stay faithful to God in this book. What it would look like is that God would empower a judge to deliver the Israelites from their oppression. They would be good for a little bit and then slowly slide back away and then they'd have to do it all over again. These, these, these judges weren't the uh, holiest of people. They were human. And so God knew that, hey, this is what I have, this is what I'm going to work with, so he would empower them to do that. And he would do that until he provided the ultimate freedom for us 
through his son, Jesus. But when we come to this story of Gideon, particularly in Judges 6, the Israelites are worshiping Baal and being oppressed by the Midianites. They swoop in each year and they take their harvest, they take their cattle, and they, whatever they can find, and they leave the Israelites completely destitute. The Midianites were professional bullies. And so here, let's turn to the scripture and get into learn a little bit about Jehovah Shalom. Judges 6, 11 through 24 reads like this. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors have told? Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian? The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand, and am I not sending you? Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you. You will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and a flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the yoke. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat, the unleavened bread, with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar, and there he called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it stands and Ophrah, the Abyssalites. I have a couple points that we're going to go through pretty quickly here that we can see um, about Jehovah Shalom. The first one is that the angel of the Lord came. I want to tell you, family, that Jehovah Shalom is present in the midst of oppression. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press, as we read. Threshing is the process of separating the useful part of the grain from the unuseful part. The way they would do this in biblical times is they would use a, what we know as a pitchfork. And they would kind of go up into an open space, and you would lift it up, and the wind would catch it, and it would separate it. But this brother is in this dugout pit down in a wine press because he's so worried about what the Midianites are going to do. He's hiding in this space. Because of this, we see just the level of oppression. But even in the midst of that oppression, we see how the Lord, Jehovah Shalom, shows up right there for him. Next, he says, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Family, I'd like to suggest that when our focus is off of the Lord, he will use whatever is required to get us to refocus on him. When our focus is off the Lord, he will use whatever is required to get us refocused on him. 
Gideon had heard about the great works of God. He had known about coming out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea and the fire by night and the smoke by day. He knew all these things, but here he was in this place where he was really struggling to understand, how did I get here? How did we get here? If we noticed his language, Gideon thought the problem was God. What did he say? He said, now the Lord has forsaken us. The problem was never with God. The problem was with Israel. The truth was that Israel had forsaken God. God had never forsaken Israel. And God will never forsake you. Many times we love to blame God, but the issue here a lot of times is with us. Even with Gideon in that statement. He stands there unaware, talking to the angel of the Lord. But he's worried about why this is happening. This, 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 the angel of the Lord just called him mighty warrior. This is an aside, but I love how the, the angel of the Lord didn't even answer the brother's question. He just told him, go in might. He didn't even answer that as he asked him his question. The presence of God is all in our prosperity and whatever we do. Gideon was a mighty man of valor, and yet he could bring nothing to pass without the presence of God. And that presence is enough to make any mighty man of valor, any of us, into that mighty man of valor or woman, and give us courage and peace during that time. Number three, when Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Many times, our doubt keeps us from experiencing the fullness of God's peace. First, let's talk about the patience of the Lord real quick. This brother said, wait right here while I go prepare this offering. He went home and made a whole meal. He cooked a goat and bread. Like, I don't know how long he was waiting for him, but he waited until he got back. Don't miss that point. I'm just saying. But he comes back, right? And because he asked God to prove who he is, is why he was doing this. The only reason you would ask someone to prove who they are is if you're really not sure if you have some doubt about who he is. Can I talk to my New England fans real quick? Right now, the Patriots got a cachet of quarterbacks that we're not sure about. I know we got Cam Newton, he's an MVP, but he's coming back from an injury and we're not sure how he's gonna perform. But there was this guy that used to play here, you might know him, his name was Tom Brady. And, and, and like when he, would, when he would play, there was this whole level of confidence in him, right? Uh, um, I mean, I don't know. You might be in a situation where you're down 28 to 3. <laughs> Yet there's some peace about you because you know that Tom Brady has proven himself over and over. And so there's a, a confidence and a peace about you in that situation. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me put this forth, that Jehovah Shalom has proven himself way more many times than Mr. Brady. Jehovah Shalom has countless times brought back fourth quarter comebacks. He has come triumphs in the midst of defeat so many times, yet there's Gideon asking him to prove himself once again. And how many times do we find ourselves maybe doing that? But when you know this Jehovah Shalom, this Lord God of peace, you move a little more different. You move a little confident when everything around you may be falling apart. Number four. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord 
and he called it the Lord is Peace. To this day, it stands in Orphra of the Abizarites. Altars and everything associated with them pointed forward to Jesus Christ. The altar in the Old Testament was the place where the reckoning of your sin was to be made clear. The animal sacrifices were the atoning of Israel's sins. They were, they were meant to cover the sin to get you a, a year's worth of forgiveness, and then you would have to do it again. It, 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 it would cover that so that whatever evil they had done, uh, they would get clear of that and could be back in right standing. So it was a place where you had to admit, you had to come face to face with what you had done with your sins. I, I can imagine that wasn't the most comfortable place to be. At this altar of Jehovah Shalom, the sight of God for Gideon passes from being a, a, a fear to a joy, from being a fountain of death to a spring of life. This terror that he had when he first uh, became aware is turned to a tranquil trust. The narrow uh, and rough path of conscious unworthiness leads to a large place of happy peace. Dear friends, do you guys know of any such experience? Family, can, can, can you build your church? Can you build your altar and give it the same name, Jehovah Shalom? Can we write uh, memorials upon our experience that the Lord is my peace? Have we, have we passed from just hearsay to personal contact with this Jehovah Shalom? Can we say that I have heard and then by hearing by ear and now I see with my eye this peace, this Jehovah Shalom? This is what it's like, church, when we come to Jesus. These animal sacrifices that I talked about, they were done repeatedly because all they could do was cover the sin. But when Jesus died upon the cross and became the ultimate sacrifice upon that altar of the cross, it was done forever and brought us into great peace. Jesus is that living altar. Our sister read just a while ago that Jesus came as the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The cross was the last altar. As a matter of fact, it was the only altar for us Gentiles. Jesus finished everything at that location outside the city in regard to our forgiveness and sin. He did it for us as well as the Jews. Again, I want to emphasize that God, uh, through Jesus, took away the sin that separates us once and for all. As in one time, it's done. Past, present, future, what you going to do when you leave here? You cut that person off, taken care of. We are creatures of time, but God is not. 
He sees all the sins that we'll ever forget, uh, that all the sins we'll ever commit, and he forgave them at Calvary. All we have to do is trust him, believe that we need such forgiveness, and that we have such forgiveness. He didn't cover our sins like the animal sacrifices. He banished them as far as the east is from the west. Because of Jesus' final sacrifice, the Father chooses not to remember our sins anymore. And we can be in peace. And now Jesus lives inside us. His peace is always present despite what's going on around us. He tells us in John 14, as Pastor Tom read, that peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. This, this peace that we're talking about today, this shalom that we're talking about, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something not attained in the physical. The, the, the adversary's lie, the enemy, the Satan, his lie to us is that it's, uh, we'll find it through escapism. Maybe it's work, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a substance or whatever it is, but his lie is that we'll find it through escapism. But God's truth is that we will find it only through embracism and that embracing of Jesus Christ. This peace means to be in harmony with God, to be bound, joined, and woven together with God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. It also means to be assured of, confident, and secure in the love of care of God. There's a consciousness and a sureness about us when we know this peace. We trust that God will provide, that he will guide, he will strengthen, he will sustain, encourage, deliver, and save. Completely those who seek him with all their hearts. This supernatural peace that I'm talking about must come first through the accepting of Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. It comes from a knowledge of and love of God's word. This, this, this peace that I'm talking about is the antithesis of fear. It provides perspective and encourages hope. It builds confidence inspires courage, affirms trust in the power of God. In a world where people are increasingly overwhelmed by stress and conflict, depression and anxiety, financial, emotional, and physical uncertainty, the presence of Jehovah Shalom provides a peace that passes all understanding. This is why those who are constantly immersed in the presence of God and rely on him for strength bear this fruit of peace in their lives. And it further ministers to those who are around them. All who are filled with anxiety and fear, doubt, or stress, I, I want to assure you that Jehovah Shalom cares. He'll never leave you. As it's written in 2 Thessalonians, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy, peace, and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Family, we cannot control the uncertainties or the circumstances of our current time. But in the presence of Jehovah Shalom, we can find hope. We can find joy. We can find strength and peace for each day. 
This week I was talking with a friend, and, and, and she, was, she mentioned to me, and she said, are you worried about what's going to happen? Uh, the, the, the economic fallout and all the stuff that's going on, are you worried about it? And it was interesting because I hadn't really thought about it, y'all, until she brought that up. And I realized to myself that uh, I had been so focused on the Lord that I hadn't been worried about all the surroundings and things that were going on. But it reminded me of this story. And I'll leave you with this. There was a train that was carrying soldiers back to a headquarters. This train was compelled to go over 60 miles, and it had to achieve that goal in one hour. It was over a very rough terrain in which they would usually take their time slowly, but they needed to get these soldiers back to the headquarters. The engineer was nervous nonetheless. With these soldiers, they also on the train was his wife and his daughter. And so every moment that this train was, 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 was threatened to pitch over the edges and, and, and sometimes even felt like it was going to fall off bridges and, and, and even felt like it leaped into the air sometimes as it went across this, this crazy, crazy tra track. The people inside would hold their breath and they were nervous and scared about the outcome of this situation. Some of them cried out in terror. Many were sweating and some were just full of tears. And as they sped along, there was one person on that train that knew nothing of any of these fears. It was the child of the engineer. She was happy as a bird, and she would laugh as they would uh, experience these ups and downs and pitches and turns. And she laughed aloud when she was asked if she was afraid. And she said, afraid? Why should I be afraid? My daddy is the engineer. And at the end of that, the, the, they got to their destination safely, and the engineer came in to wipe the sweat off his brow and comfort his wife and his daughter. And she leaped into his arms, and she rested her head upon his chest. And she was as happy and as peaceful as if she was at home. Family, as we're careening along in this time of uncertainty, uh, of unrest, in so many different situations, I think the one question that we need to ask ourselves is, who's engineering our train? Is it Jehovah Shalom, the Lord God, our peace? 